Now we have, uh, we have time for comments and questions. And, and please, don't feel like you just have to ask questions if you have something to say. Please don't take too long, but say it. So if you have comments or questions, we'll do it like we did it last time. Here comes Darren. Yeah, how do you uh, disciple eight-year-olds and nine-year-olds? That's a wonderful question, and I'll let me just say first, that's the best time to do it. That's the best time to do it, uh, and to, to disciple them. And the way you do it is incorporating them in your life as a disciple. Uh, if you're talking about the home, they will pick it up. Well, you, may, you will have to make arrangements to be together with them. And in that arrangement, then you teach them about the kingdom of God. And the best way to do that is begin by teaching them about their kingdom. And they will get it immediately. Because they know what it is like to have say over things and to have that say contested. And how important it is. And how it is important at school to have your locker See, that's their kingdom. They understand kingdom stuff immediately. And then you can introduce them into the kingdom of God and God's intention for us and talk to them about having responsibility. And so you say, well, what about your dog? Okay, you're, you're responsible for your dog. And uh, so you illustrate by simple things like that. And then, of course, you take them to the stories about Jesus and the stories that Jesus told. And it will happen for them because they haven't been hardened usually at that point. They haven't been hardened away from it. Thank you, Dr. Willard. Um, in Spirit of D Disciplines, you made a statement that really hit me between the eyes. And uh, you, you uh, told, it, told us that we need to go beyond charity and social welfare programs Absolutely. as a church. But here's the quote that blew me away. Because you, I don't, I've never heard anybody say this. You called upon the people of God to assume the responsibility under God and by his power of owning and directing the world's wealth Amen. and goods. And, of course, if you go on and expand on yeah. that as why, is we could then, right. we can direct those to where it's most needed. But... You don't hear very many people talking about the church actually, um, you know, owning and directing the world. We're supposed to give it away, right? Well, that's the illusion. Right. And what we have to understand is charity and giving away can never solve the problem uh, of, of the order of the world in which people need charity. Now, there's a need for charity. I don't know, I'm not saying that isn't true. I, what I'm saying is charity alone will never solve the problems that people face in this world. What will do it is people of God controlling and directing the wealth of this world in ways that serve God and serve human beings. Thank you. That's a really important point. Really. We must do justice to that. Yes. Thank you, Dr. Willard. I come as the anxious seminary student. Uh, <laughs> Be anxious for nothing. Yes. <laughs> it seems like in these days, um, 
we hear a lot of use of a lot of the terms you use, kingdom, right. kingdom of God, kingdom sure. theology, yeah. societal transformation, that sort of thing. And I wonder if you could speak to, I'm noticing a lot of the younger evangelicals, especially my generation mm-hmm. and such, having the same concerns you have with mm-hmm. their upbringing, sensing a, a sense of missing something and moving toward the sh- social activism. Yes. But it seems to me the predominant move is more toward the types of um, revolutionary or liberation right. type yes. Yes. thinkings. And I wonder if you could speak to that, how your model seems a little different, a mm-hmm. bit of a different epistemological base to me or method mm-hmm. in one way or another. And uh, how would you respond to those people? Okay. Go well, in a wink sort of a way that would say, well, you could talk about personal influence and all that, but you're still being trapped in the systems or the structures and we need to organize and confront the powers or right. more that sort of rhetoric. Well, uh, you've raised a lot of very important issues, especially by using the word epistemology. <laughs> and, and that really is important. So let me try to oversimplify the answer. Any program that does not deal with character is inadequate. See, And these programs don't. And they actually encourage people to avoid that. Um, T.S. Eliot says in one place, we're all looking for a system so perfect that we don't have to be good. And that is the problem with the greening of evangelicalism, as it is sometimes called. They are bypassing the issue of character transformation. And we're not going to have justice in the world until we have enough just people distributed throughout the earth to see to it that justice is done. You cannot handle those issues by general arrangements. Sometimes, of course, you need to change general arrangements. If you have a society in which there's slavery, you need to get rid of it. But you must not believe that getting rid of it will solve the problems of human life. Now, that shouldn't stop you in getting rid of something bad. But you do have to pay attention to this issue of character transformation. And that's where our Gospels, both right and left, fail. See, our Gospel that the whole thing is sin, forgiveness of sins does not lead to character transformation. The idea that the problem is liberation of those who are oppressed does not lead to character transformation. And so did the mighty megalith of sin rolls on, crushing human lives. So that's what I would say is you have to look at any program in terms of what it means for transformation of character of those involved in it. It's not the only issue, but it's a crucial issue. Yes, sir. I'd like to ask the same question and hear the same answer. No. (laughs) That was awesome. Um, I'd like you to speak to uh, Matthew 11, 12, where the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violence take it. I'm glad to speak to it. Thank you. What that passage is about is about how people, now that they had heard Jesus and watched him, 
no longer stood on the proprieties dictated by the religious system. The violence in question there is not standing on proprieties. Here's violence. A little man hears Jesus talk, and he's a leper. And so he comes to Jesus. That's violence. What you're supposed to do is go away if you're a leper. He comes to him. That's violence. A little woman from the streets comes in and starts washing Jesus' feet with her tears and wiping it with her hair. That's violence. So the violence there is the expression of uh, not standing on proprieties. And, and that's what that passage in Matthew is about. You have a similar one in Luke 16:16. 16, 16. The law and the prophets were preached until John. After that, the door is open and crowds are just pushing their way in. That's violence. It's not talking about taking an Uzi and mowing down your enemies. Right? That would be violence too, but that's not the kind he's talking about, in my opinion. Uh, taking all of these. Well, no, it does have to do with that. That would be one of the effects. Because when you start character transformation in your workplace, people will regard it as violence. Because you're not going to be doing what they regard as the proprieties, which often include things like lying and cheating and stealing. So it does have to do with that. Dr. Willard? Yes, sir. I've uh, been very successful in life in making friends and making acquaintances. When I meet them, I let them know right away or at some point in time that I'm a Christian yeah. and I share my faith with them. Uh -huh. I've been a pretty miserable failure at winning people to Christ uh -huh. and discipling people. Oh. What am I doing wrong? <laughs> well, you, you need to think about... Uh, uh, not trying to get them to do things, but trying to help them understand things and let that bring them to places of decision. Um, soul winning is only mentioned once in the Bible and it has nothing to do with converting people. It has to do with the fact that if you can get people to change, you're a smart man. He that winneth souls is wise, the old version said. Not talking about what we call soul winning. The idea of soul winning is something you have to look at very carefully, whether or not you're supposed to be involved in that. You are supposed to be involved in witnessing. Witnessing means helping people know what they need to know. And very often, the most important part of witnessing is listening. People have others yammering at them all the time. Almost no one has anyone who listens to them. And uh, w listening and asking appropriate questions is the greatest part of helping people come to the place to where they can make a decision to be a disciple. So I would just encourage you to try that out. Uh, it will come as a shock to people because they're expecting you to jump down their throat. And you're not going to do that now. You're going to love them, help them understand, ask questions that will be illuminating. You know, you change the questions sometimes. Instead of asking, what will happen to you if you die tonight? Ask, 
What will happen to you if you don't die tonight? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Yeah. So you learn how to you learn how to shift questions around so that people have to think about it. And see, what people come to in their thinking, they don't have to resist. If, they, if you give it to them, they say, wait a minute, this big tall guy here is telling me all this stuff. I'd better, no, no, let it come from them. Notice how often Jesus ministers by asking questions. Go bring your husband. Well, I don't have a husband. <laughs> you said it, baby. <laughs> so uh, I, really, I really think, I know your heart is in the right place, and I praise God for it. But I would just concentrate on trying to help people understand what they need to understand. Dr. Dr. Willard, good to see you again. I just love the way you think. Well, thank you. Uh, in Divine Conspiracy, one of the, my favorite all-time books, in the back you mentioned about uh, asking Jesus uh, to accept you as an apprentice. I found that very powerful personally. Mm -hmm. But I'd like to see what your comments would be about using that in a church context, about having a discipleship program. Where would that fit in correctly? Well, I think that that would be one of the things that would happen to people if you allow them to come to understand that the issue is eternal living in contrast to the kinds of harassment that most people experience in trying to carry through with their lives. Um, but, see, that would be, I believe, an outcome uh, of a person coming to understand that they need to have Jesus as their Savior and their Lord and their teacher, um, and they need to live learning from him constantly as they go along. So that's how I would see it. I, I, I hope, that's, uh, hope that's right, and I, I would think that that is where, of course, if they're living in a context of people who have become apprentices of Jesus, it's easy for them to make that request. But I, was instead of somebody coming and trying to learn from me on how to be a disciple of Jesus, that they would transfer from me to actually taking the lessons from Christ himself. As it says in the scriptures, John 6, 45, mm -hmm. Isaiah 54, 13, you'll be taught by the Lord. Mm -hmm. There is a method for and I thought, I found that in your book, and... You know, I How think that's, that's, where, that's where they will go, but I'm afraid that in most cases they have to start with us, and we have to be prepared to say, follow me, with the understanding that we're going to hand it off to Jesus. That will be a part of the natural progression. But then they're going to have to be able to stand in the world and say, follow me, to those around them. I don't think we can get out of that. I think that we just have to accept the fact that we have to say, follow me, and we can say, you know, I'm not perfect and all of that, but look at what I'm doing and see if you can fit into that pattern, and Jesus will take you on uh, along with our fellowship together, but he's the one 
that will be your uh, Lord and you will be his apprentice. But I do think we just have to accept it. We have to show the stuff we're talking about. Hi, Dallas. Uh, yes. Wherever you are, I can't see you. Over here. <laughs> okay. Hi, Dallas. How are you? Um, I'm getting by. <laughs> I wanted to ask you if you could speak. Um, I, I work at the local university, and I wanted to hear you say a little bit more about, I, I understand what you're saying, the difference between vocation and getting a job, having a career, having an occupation. But how do we talk to uh, young people, particularly today, whether our, our own children, students, even ourselves, about uh, practically when making a living at the same time having a calling? Uh, that's, uh, that's a tremendously important thing. And I think that we, uh, we want to talk about, to them about God's calling on their lives and start there and help them to see that there is a bigger issue than making a living. And that's really hard today because more recently, of course, young people have had to face this problem of joblessness and so on. But I encourage people to think in terms of their calling as something that is not given by human beings. What does God have for them to do in life? Now, I would spend quite a while talking with them about that and let them develop an understanding. And, and I really think we need to develop an understanding that we have something to do that isn't the same as a job or making a living and that, that it's actually more important for us to understand that and live in it. And a part of that will be watching for the hand of God to lead us in employment and then trying to fit that together with our calling. So the curse of, of uh, employment today is, in the words of Johnny Paycheck, take this job and shove it. Right? It's the idea that this is just a job, I hate it, uh, and now that's a quick trip to self-loathing if you aren't careful. So the idea of calling needs to be separated from job with the understanding that having a job is important. We need to make a living, but it's more important, forgive the triteness of this, that we make a life. And making a life is what we want to focus on. And then within that context, of course, our expectation is that God will find a way in which we can make a living. But that might not include everything that we had in mind. Maybe we will drive a Hyundai <laughs> instead of a U-Fly or whatever. <laughs> Mercedes-Benz or whatever. Now, there's nothing wrong, please, nothing wrong with driving a Mercedes-Benz. That's what you're living for. That's a different story. I think, we've got, I think we have time for one more question. Thank you so much for all your teaching today. Thank My you. question is, in the Old Testament, we read that David was a man after God's own heart. So can you take some of the principles that you illustrated today and, and show how they were lived out in David's life, even though it was before Jesus? 
Now, the question is, can I take some of the principles we've been talking about today and show how they worked out in David's life? Yes. Um, David especially knew that what he, he had been able to accomplish was something that God had enabled him to do. And that comes out over and over in his teaching. Now, obviously, that was not enough to keep him from doing something that God certainly didn't approve of. Uh, but, for example, in the Psalms, you see him talking about his life as a warrior, where he says, By my God, I have run through a troop. By my God, I have leaped over a wall. And he's talking about how, in that context, God enabled him to do things he couldn't do. And you will see that theme come up over and over in his life and in his Psalms, is how God enabled him to do the things. You know, David's heart was good, even though he did evil. And the, the great mistake of Solomon, and I have to say this because Solomon is often held up as wonderful because he didn't ask for riches, he asked for wisdom. He made a mistake. His wisdom ruined him. He should have said, Oh God, give me a heart that loves you like my father David loved you. And then he would have been in a much better position. But his wisdom under, un, undone him, undid him, whatever that is. And he, he, uh, he was led into a position where he was not as smart as he thought he was. Right? And that's one of the problems with that kind of wisdom. He needed a heart like David. David was crazy about God. He was crazy about God. He would get out on the street and dance like an idiot for joy in God. And you know, that's really our only safe place, is delighting in God in that way. And when we delight in God in that way, we're in a position to withstand everything that comes at us, including our own failures. Great question. So much for being here. Can we give him a round of applause? Thank you, thank you. Appreciate it.